The passage for this morning's message is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, beginning at verse 22, and I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read. Luke, chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, which you shall eat, nor about your body, which you shall put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a cubit to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O men of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be of anxious mind. For all the nations of the world seek these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. And these things shall be yours as well. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Provide yourselves with purses that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Why does the flock of God struggle with fear? Luke 12 makes it real plain that we do, and it points to four things that show what we're prone to fear and tries to show us that we don't need to. For example, go back to verse 4 with me in Luke 12. I tell you, friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. So in this verse, he implies we struggle with what fear? Fear of death, especially death through persecution. Drop down to verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogue and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious how or what you are to answer or what you are to say. So he implies that we struggle with the fear of what? Public disapproval, not having the right thing to say, so we're ashamed of what we come up with. Drop down to verse 22. The whole chapter is about fear and how to overcome it. Therefore, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat, or about your body, what you shall put on. So what does he tell us that we're struggling with here? 
the physical needs, uh, necessities of, of life, food, clothing, shelter, medical needs, friends, fearing that the basics won't be there. The whole chapter is about fears we struggle with and how to overcome them. The point is, he doesn't want us to have these fears. He wants us to overcome them. For example, in regard to the first one, he says, death is not the worst thing. Hell is the worst thing. And God will keep you out of hell because the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And therefore, he means that there is a detailed tenderness that will be applied to you. The very hairs of your head are numbered. With regard to the second one, he says, the Holy Spirit will teach you what you are to say in the hour of public testing. You don't. You don't need to fear. You won't be left alone in coming up with what to say. With regard to the third fear, he says the Father knows your daily needs and is far more inclined to meet your needs than he is to meet the needs of the ravens and the lilies. And yet look how they're arrayed. So Jesus is trying to say, no fear of death, no fear of public shame, no fear of poverty or want. He wants us to know that God is the kind of God who makes that unnecessary. But there's a kind of fear that we haven't mentioned yet that is more basic and more pervasive, probably more immobilizing and more troublesome than any of these fears. And it's mentioned in verse 32. And perhaps the Lord saved it for last because it underlies the others. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, what fear is Jesus trying to eliminate in that verse? I think he's trying to eliminate the fear that God is the kind of God who does not like to be good to us. He's trying to address, I think, the inclination of those people whose hearts are prone to think that God is acting out of character when he does good things to us. People who are prone to think that really at root, God's always angry. What God really loves to do is judge sinners. Just get people. How do you help people whose vision of God is that even when he does a kindness, is acting out of character? That's not the way he really is. Well, this is Palm Sunday. What do you picture on Palm Sunday? Palms, but who walked on the palms? Jesus came into Jerusalem. He comes into our hearts riding on what? Not a stallion. No sword in his hand. On a donkey. And Matthew makes it very plain why he chose a donkey. Because, he says, he's coming to you humble and lowly riding on a donkey. The whole thing is an acted out parable of servanthood. It's a way of saying visually, I'm coming to serve. I don't intend to lay waste. And yet, there are those among us who look at that and feel it's a camouflage. As soon as he gets a foothold in Jerusalem, he's going to rip off those rags, pull out his sword and do his business. What he really loves to do, nail Pharisees. 
And I wonder how many people think that God is the kind of God who is fundamentally, at root, angry. Always angry. Always irritated with us. Irked. Displeased. Well, this morning Jesus is at pains. And I choose that phrase very consciously. He is at pains in Luke 12:32 to free us from that vision of God in which God begrudges his benefits. He's out of character when he does good. And he's always angry. He's always irritated. Luke 12:32 is about the nature of God. It's about what God loves to do. It's not about what God will do. It's not about what God has to do. It's about what God loves to do, delights to do, enjoys doing. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So I want to just take this lozenge of God's truth and put it on the tongue of your heart and just roll it over six times until the juices just kind of seep down into your soul and sweeten your view of God. Because if you are willing to listen to this verse, it is revolutionary. Let's just take it a piece at a time. First, the phrase, good pleasure. You see that? Now, it's okay if you're Translations have, it pleased God, or he chose to do it gladly. It's a verb in the Greek. It's a one-word verb. It means to be pleased by, to take pleasure in. God does this gladly, giving you the kingdom. Now, I was poking around in the New Testament, trying to find some places where this word was used that would help me get at the reason why Jesus used it and what implication it has. And I found one that I liked very much and was a great help to me. And you can look it up if, if you want to. It's Philippians 1. And in Philippians 1, you know the situation? Paul is probably in prison in Rome. An interesting thing happens. Two kinds of Christians, maybe one of them weren't Christians, I'm not sure, start preaching the gospel from radically different motives. One of them doesn't like Paul. They don't like Paul at all. And so they start preaching and their whole idea is Paul would love to be out here preaching. And so when he sees us freely preaching, he'll just feel irritated and we can, we can uh, aggravate his trouble in prison. And so they preach the gospel to aggravate Paul's trouble. And there's this other group that loves Paul and loves the gospel and they start preaching. Because they know that if Paul knows they're preaching, they'll be excited. He'll be excited because he will say, look, even though I'm in jail, the Lord reigns and the gospel is going forth and being preached. Verse 15, Philippians 1. Here's the way Paul says it. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from, and here's our word, 
others from goodwill, or we could say good pleasure. It's the same word, only it's a noun here in Philippians 1.15. Now, what's the point here? Look at this. Two groups doing the same thing, only for one of them, the preaching of the gospel. This good deed is a cloak for malice. What they really want to do is just rub it in. Paul's in jail and can't do it. We can do it. Paul can do it. And they hope that Paul will just feel terrible. And they're preaching. And then this other group are preaching without any cloak at all. There's no hiding. It's real. They're authentic. It's just bursting out. They love Paul. They love the gospel. Well, now, what's the point in Luke 12, 32, when Jesus uses the word that this second group characterizes or that characterizes this, this second group? They are acting according to their good pleasure. That's the way God acts. So what's the point? It's like this. When God does good to you, when He promises you something, when He says, I'm going to give you the kingdom, He's not like that first group of preachers who says, really though, really though, behind, i got another idea. Sure, I have to save a few, but really what I love to do is judge people. The word means no. No. God is authentic. He's pure. He's genuine. You can see right to His heart when He does you good. He's not cloaking or camouflaging another motive. You are seeing right to His good pleasure when He promises you spectacular things like the kingdom of God. The Lord's meaning is inescapable here. He is fighting against that temptation to think that God begrudges His benefits. He's fighting against our inclination to think that God does not delight to do us good. That it is something under constraint that He does when His real heart is in judgment. He's against that view of God. And He's working in this verse with all the words He can find to overcome that in your life this morning. Fear not, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Good pleasure, not duty. Good pleasure, not necessity. Good pleasure, not obligation. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Second, let's look at the phrase, your Father. Fear not, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He doesn't say it's your employer's good pleasure to pay you your wage. He doesn't say it's your slave master's good pleasure to give you a little house out on the edge of the plantation. He doesn't even say it's your king's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. He reaches for a word that will help achieve what he's after in your heart this morning. Namely, your father delights to give you the kingdom. He is not ill-disposed. He's your father. Now... The problem is, an unbelievable number of people in this sanctuary right now didn't have fathers like that. I sat down with one of our staff this week, and, and uh, she said to me, 
I've never heard you say anything critical of your parents. And she's known me for 14 years. And I said, well, I think I could think of something. And I could. But my overwhelming impression is that they were near perfect. They sang more than they criticized me. They prayed more than they said anything harmful to me. They played with me more than they spanked me. They served and served and served, and not without spankings. And so she said to me, trying to help me get ready for this message, I think, um, you're really an exception, John. You're really an exception, and you need to know that. Because when you look out over those people, most of them didn't have dads like that. Most of them had crummy dads. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know what percentage in here had dads who beat you around and have time for you, who you looked at, and he was always angry, always angry, always irritated, and you just maneuvered to stay out of his way, just get out of his way. And so, what I suppose is the case is that when you come to this text, there is this massive obstacle standing there emotionally to keep you from hearing what I hear and feeling what I feel when he says, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So I think, you see, this whole issue of child abuse and the kinds of stories we hear today, it's not new. It's probably worse today, but it's not new. You know, there's a text in Hebrews. In fact, Tom, you prayed it the other Wednesday night. And uh, that's why I thought of it this morning. When we were talking about child abuse, Tom quoted this text from Hebrews 13. We had fathers who disciplined us according to their will. But you have a Father in heaven who disciplines you for your holiness. You see what, what the writer's getting at there? Your father might have just willy-nilly smacked you around. But your Father in heaven is not a willy-nilly smacker-arounder. And so what we all have to do, even I, who, whose father is a godly man approaching perfection... <laughs> I've got to look away from him at the Bible and say, what is implied in fatherhood? And let me, I had a long list. I'm only going to mention two. Number one, if your king is your father, you are an heir of the kingdom. Now, what does that mean? That means that there's something natural about inheriting the kingdom. Your father is not acting out of sorts or out of character when you inherit his uh, his estate. That's what happens. There's something natural about it. In fact, in Matthew 25, 34, King Jesus at the end of the age says, Come, O blessed of my Father, inherit, there's the word, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. In other words, before this world was created, God prepared for His children an inheritance, namely the kingdom, 
And he does not begrudge his children coming into their inheritance. Why, fathers love it when their children come into their inheritance. The name can go on. Their estate can be filled with people after their own likeness. This is not something that puts God out of character to do. Second implication of the king being your father is that you don't get taxed. You know that story I'm thinking of in John seven, uh, Matthew 17? The, the uh, Pharisees come to the disciples and they say, Do you and does your master pay the temple tax? And Peter says, Yes. And then he goes back to Jesus and says, Do we pay the temple tax? <laughs> and Jesus says... What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tribute? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. That's a great text. God levies no taxes on his children. Outside the palace walls, where there is rebellion against the king, the weight of the law is felt. Inside the palace, it is all joy and love and peace and harmony. God does not levy taxes on his children. Oh, how much more we could say about fatherhood. If you, being evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the kingdom to those who ask Him? Fear not, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Third, look at the word give. Give. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Not sell you the kingdom. Not trade you the kingdom. Not barter with you for the kingdom. To give the kingdom. So here we're seeing it again. Eleven weeks now we've seen it. Oh, how I've prayed that you would see it. God is a mountain spring. Not a watering trough. And therefore, the delight of his heart is to overflow and to glorify his fullness by giving and giving and giving. He does not need nor does he want a bucket brigade or sweaty pumpers. If God needed me to pour a bucket into his trough, you know what I would say to God? Bow down. And worship me. He is full. He doesn't need water. He doesn't need work. He doesn't need me or you. He is a fountain. And he overflows century after century. And will for all eternity. Giving and giving and giving and giving. Fear not little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you. The kingdom. He's not stingy. He's not a Scrooge. He's not miserly. He's not tight-fisted. He's not parsimonious. He's liberal. He's open-handed. He's generous. 
That's His glory. If you know God, you know Him as a God who is a bubbling fountain of generosity and who laughs to give His kingdom to His children. Fourth, look at the word flock. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's mixing metaphors all over the place here, and I like it, because I'm glad he's willing to offend against literary decorum in order to do everything he can to touch our hearts. What If God... Um, If I'm part of a flock, then God is what to me? Shepherd. All right, so we've got three things. We've got a father. We've got a king who has a kingdom. And now we've got a shepherd. So the the metaphors are all jumbled together here. A father with children, a king with subjects, a shepherd with sheep. Why? What does it mean to you to be called the flock of God? It means... The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the very presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Does it mean that to you when you hear this little word, flock? Here's another thing it means. It means, remember John 10. What does John 10 teach? I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Did he lay down his life under constraint? Was Jesus acting out of character when he chose to lay out his hands on the cross and his feet? And expose his side to the sword. Was he acting out of character? And really inside he was saying, I hate this. I hate to save sinners. I hate to die for sinners. No. He said very clearly right there in that same text. I have power. To lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And he could have said, of my own good pleasure. And I have power to take again. And he will next Sunday. But today he's on his way to Calvary. And he's saying, I'm doing it freely. I love to save sinners at the cost of my life. It's my father's good pleasure to bruise His son, it's my good pleasure at his son to obey my father and to save my people. Fifth, look at the word little. (laughs) Fear not, little flock. Why did he add that? I think Jesus is choosing these words for all. All their emotional power. 
Because he knows that there are people who are prone emotionally to be deaf to this message. Why did he say, little flock? Why did when John wrote to his Christian converts, why did he write them as my little children? It's a term of endearment. It's a term of affection. It's a term of care. If I say to my family, when we're surrounded by a grave danger, fear not, little family. I'll take care of you. What do I mean? I mean, they're, they're so little compared to this big danger. And I love them so much. And they're so precious to me. I'm going to fight for them. I'm going to do everything I can to save them from this danger. And when God says it, who's a lot stronger than I am, so much care, so much tenderness, so much cherishing is in that word little. Here's another thing that's in that word little. It means my experience of the goodness of God is not dependent on my greatness. We're a little flock at Bethlehem. We're little in numbers, if you compare us to the city, let alone the world. We're little in righteousness. We're little in hope. We're little in love. What if the goodness of God were dependent on our bigness? We'd have no hope. But it's not, and therefore we can. That's the point of the text. They're just a teeny little flock. But don't let your littleness in any way produce the emotional disposition that he doesn't care about me. The whole point is to say God magnifies his kingly, fatherly, shepherd-like glory by condescending to be affectionate toward and caring of the littlest flock. Finally, look at the word kingdom. I, I suppose it would be possible for someone to sit there and say, okay, I've heard uh, you say that he's a father and not a slave master and that he is giving and not selling and that he's a shepherd who has a flock that he tends and that he... Uh, loves to uh, give to the little and show affection for them. But what, after all, does he give? He doesn't give money. In fact, he said, it is hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. He doesn't give popularity. In fact, he said, blessed are you when men hate you and cast out your name and say all kinds of evil against you. And he doesn't give security because he said parents will hand you over to synagogues and men will betray you and some of you they will kill and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. What does he give? No money? No popularity, fame, approval, applause, the things we really desire? No security in this life? I could get my throat slit on the way home. He gives the kingdom of God, that's all. The kingdom of God. Just think of it. 
What does it mean to be offered this morning freely with the heartbeat of God behind it, the sovereign reign and omnipotent rule of God for you? Well, choose. Which would you rather have? Seventy years of money, popularity, and security on the earth and destruction thereafter? Or seventy years of the accompaniment of God to give you peace and ten trillion years of the omnipotence of God engaged to make you infinitely happy forever and ever and ever and ever? Does he not show that not only he delights to give, but that he delights to give big? You can't think of anything greater than the kingdom of God this morning. And it's just offered to you. Laughingly, joyfully, gladly, according to his good pleasure, he just lavishes the kingdom. Which of us could ever imagine what it is going to be like when that saying comes to pass, which Jesus spoke at the Last Supper, which we're going to talk about on Thursday night, when he said, My Father appointed for me a kingdom, so also I appoint for you that you might eat and drink with me in my kingdom. You can have ten lifetimes of money, Popularity and security if I can just have ten minutes at that table with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So I just close by commending to you with all my heart this morning this glorious sentence from our Lord Jesus. Fear not, little flock. And I'm going to ask you to say it with me when I'm done because some of you need to just say it out loud. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Say it with me. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Every word is chosen by the Savior to minister to your heart this morning. Fear not, little flock, your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's sing together. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And just admonish one another. Let's just sing it out. Seek ye first God. O Father in heaven, we delight to call you that name. And we pray together as a congregation right now that if there are any here who have never put their trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, that they would do it even now as I pray. That they would be folded into the flock and welcomed into the family through Christ. 
And then, Lord, we pray together as a congregation for those of us who struggle to see you this way. Those of us who can hardly shake the thought that you're always irritated and always angry, that you do good begrudgingly and are out of character when you are kind. Oh, God, do a miracle, I pray, this morning. And take this short dynamite text and explode that view of God. And put yourself in the place. Through Jesus Christ, I pray. And all the people said, Amen.